Welcome to Maximus Men Striving for Greatness and to another episode of the podcast. New and improved a little bit this time. Um, Chris De Silva here with you from the Life, Marriage and Family Office in the Archdiocese of Sydney. And today I'm joined by the director of the Sydney Centre for Evangelization, of which my team is a part, Mr. Daniel Ang. Daniel, thanks for joining us. Hey, Chris, great to be with you. Fantastic. Thanks so much again for, for being here. So not only is uh, Daniel the, the director of the Sydney Centre for Evangelization, but he's also been pretty involved in men's ministry, especially recently in the ACVC virtual men's gathering. So many of you watching this will have been familiar with that and will have seen his talk. So we're going to be diving a bit deeper into that question, where are all the men? But even more recently than that, um, Dan, you were one of the contributing authors to Robert Felsen's compilation of, of stories of Christian fathers around Australia called Raising Fathers. Um, and I've had a read of your chapter. Absolutely fascinating, great writing. Um, so we'll go a little bit into that as well. That sounds good. Great. And so you're here with us, Dan, because... As we know, there's not only a crisis of men being absent from the church, but there's also a crisis of masculinity in our society. And that's probably part of the reason why we've got a crisis of masculinity in the church in the first place. Um, but Jesus said where two or three are gathered in his name, he'll be here with us. And so we've already got two men gathered here together on this <laughs> conversation. So we're off to a good start. We are. Great. Now, before I get into the questions, let's do as we always do and just begin with a quick prayer. If you'll join me in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Loving Jesus, um, we come before you at this time, remembering that you have set the perfect example of what it means to be a man of authentic masculinity. Um, and that you show us the way to become more of the men um, who you call us to be, men like you. And in becoming men like you, we know that, that we can bring other men into your church. So we pray that Daniel, that myself, that all men watching this conversation would become more like you and become a magnet to other men out there in our lives, our brothers, our friends, our fathers, our sons, uh, bringing them into, into communion with you in the Holy Catholic Church. And as always, we ask for St. Joseph's intercession during this time. St. Joseph, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Wonderful. So, Daniel, because I usually start by getting our guests to give us some background, I thought perhaps starting with the chapter that you've written in Raising Fathers would be the best place. You go into a lot of detail on your family of origin in that chapter, uh, more detail than I suppose any of my guests have gone into <laughs> in terms of talking about their families of origin um, at the beginning of these, these podcasts. Um, but, I mean, would you like to tell us a little bit about your grandfather, his, his life, the way that he affected your dad's perception of masculinity and then, and then how that affected you and your perception of masculinity. Yeah, thanks, Chris. I'd be honoured to. Um, look, and, and it was a great privilege to be able to contribute to 
the Raising Fathers book. In, in, in some sense, I hadn't given that history a lot of thought, and so it was really a, a great opportunity just to explore um, some of our family's history. Uh, my paternal grandfather, uh, his name was Lian Kui. Uh, he was born in Johor, which is in the south of the Malayan uh, Peninsula, and be- born around 1912. And uh, as a young man in his 20s, he then moved north to uh, a little town called Taiping, which is a tin mining town. So tin had been discovered there in the 1850s, and mines opened up in mineral wealth through trade and uh, other forms of industry to the town. And that's what took my grandfather from the south to the north of Malaysia. And that's where my dad was born uh, and his eight siblings were raised. Um, my grandfather, he, he was married to uh, his wife, my grandmother, in uh, around late 1941. And that was at a time when the Japanese were invading uh, Malaysia and um, the Japanese were taking uh, younger women as comfort women or basically taking women for their own sexual gratification. And um, one means of at least trying to minimise the risk of that was to, to be married. So that's the circumstances under which my grandparents were married in the jungles of, um, of Taiping. My grandfather wasn't an overly successful businessman, so he, he tried. He, I'm not clear whether it was just a, a mismatch of his giftedness, but he wasn't overly successful and had a variety of jobs throughout his life. Um, and he eventually became a taxi driver. And that, that really probably kept the family in a state of poverty um, for some time. You know, obviously with a family of 11, um, they had, you know, a one-bedroom shack um, on the edge of, a, of their land, a, um, landowner's property. Um, and, and I, in a sense, in some sense, he, he was very social. So he, he was so outreaching, in fact, that um, he was barely ever at home. So um, I think in some ways my grandfather was, for my father, more of a foil than an example. He, for whatever reasons, he, he wasn't present uh, as he could have been. And, um, you know, there's probably some dimensions of... Um, being overwhelmed by perhaps his life situation and um, would ride his motorcycle around Taiping and, and um, you know, all in all, there seems to be a sense that he wasn't around. And so when asking my father about his memories, he, he didn't have particularly strong memories of his own father being present. Um, so I think... The, the effect of that on my own father was that it did spur an entrepreneurial spirit in the sense that he, he learned to become self-sufficient. Um, and as the oldest boy of, um, of the family, you know, it was very much for him to, um, to school himself and to be able to uh, be resourceful. So um, he'd, he'd collect copper wire uh, from around the town and, and sell that, and even when he was in his 20s and he moved to London to be a nurse, he, he would sell fish and sell ice cream in between shifts just to make another dollar and um, send some of that back home, obviously, to to his family. So, you know, even though there were challenging circumstances in my father's life, in the family that he was raised, 
I've come to really appreciate his sense of resourcefulness and always able to turn challenges into a sense of possibility. Um, and so even though my parents aren't of the Christian faith, in some regards they've still been fundamental to the own faith that I came into by demonstrating those values. And one of them, certainly my dad, has always held us in hope. Um, and not simply as a passive victim of history, but hope in terms of a concrete commitment to the present, no matter how challenging that can be, and to always take the next step. So um, from, from there, my father moved to London in his 20s, um, and he'd been dating my mother for a, a couple of years and then went over to London uh, to work as a nurse, and they married in London. My older brother was born there in London, and then in um, the wake of the shedding of the white Australia policy, uh, Dad decided to move the family of then three to Sydney, and, and that's when I was born um, in Western Sydney. So it's been a, a journey for the family and certainly conscious of all that um, I've inherited from my own father in terms of his results resourcefulness and hope um you know my brother and i are very fortunate to have um all that we have because of him uh, we're very much inheritors of what he's achieved and um very grateful for for the way in which he's made our lives possible in a in a, in a way which perhaps was never going to be possible for himself at uh when he was younger yeah yeah, I mean, I think that's a fantastic example of, of virtue that your dad set for you, mostly out of necessity, right? He needed to step up. And um, like you said, he, he was a bit more, his father was a bit more of a foil in, than an example. And so he wanted to be really present and set a really good example and, a, and a, an example of where to work ethic is and that sort of thing for you. So yeah, you absolutely. have that, that virtue there. I think I think so. You know, it's um, I, I don't think any of us, you know, have the ideal circumstances in our lives. We, we don't always mm. um, come into ideal situations, but just the ability to, to make something of that and to, you know, it takes a lot of self-reliance and trust and a lot of hard sweat. I'm conscious that so many migrants have come to Australia. Um, I'm sure your own family, Chris, has, has got a rich history as well and yeah. and the ability to to work hard and to build a future uh, can seem very romantic when you're looking back but mm. it, it takes a lot of trust and hope to, to to commit yourself each day to to a future which you can't yet see yeah yeah no i can certainly see some parallels i mean my my grandparents on my dad's side uh, moved from madeira the portuguese island um, to south africa Right. So my dad was born in South Africa and they, you know, owned little supermarkets and they did a bit of farming here and there. Um, and so my dad inherited a really strong work ethic. Uh, but I think looking at how that affected me personally is that I, I didn't really see my dad working hard because he was always out when he was working hard and he came home and he'd be very relaxed and playing around with us and that sort of thing. Um, and he worked so hard and was so successful with his small refrigeration and air conditioning business that when I was growing up as a child in South Africa, I was actually very pampered. I got like almost everything I asked for. And I look back at that now and I say, well, 
it probably swung to the pendulum probably swung a bit too far the other way because I wasn't set that good example. And so after we moved here, um, although the country itself is, is richer, we uh, found ourselves moving more into the middle class when we had been upper class. And um, I sort of, when I left home, suddenly realized the hard lessons that I needed to learn to be able to support myself. Um, so these things all balance themselves out. They do. Um, it's, it's very interesting to see like the, the type of examples that our fathers set for us really, really set us on a path um, for the rest of our lives. So I might, I might pry a little bit deeper there, Daniel, with what your relationship was with your dad, you know, going through high school, um, yeah, what was your relationship like and, and how did that prepare you for adulthood? Yeah, probably much like your, your own father, mine was certainly saw himself as the quintessential provider and um, mm. it worked very hard. And I think looking back at the weight of responsibility that brought on him, I think in some ways I have a fantastic relationship with my dad today. Uh, but I think when he was younger and we were children, I think I think it was difficult. I think it was a challenge. I mean, he was he's obviously stressed and, and, and working very hard to establish not only himself but our family here uh, in, this, in the early 80s. And as I was growing up, there was a, a sense that there was a seriousness about my father and, and, and he could be severe and, and, and that comes from a cultural background as well. Uh, but looking back, I think, you know, the, these were difficult times for him, I think, in some respects, but we were always provided for. Um, at times, I, I have to admit, I probably feared him more than I knew him uh, as I was growing up. And um, and, and over the years, I, I think he would say quite uh, honestly that he's also mellowed and changed over time. And, and certainly now as adults, we have a fantastic relationship and a very... Um, able to express our love for each other and 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 and, and the rapport and and the sense of sonship and fathership is, is is very very much alive so i think in the migrant experience growing up without necessarily having that financial security and trying to establish themselves that parenting just looked different and I think over time I've come to learn to accept that. Um, certainly in my adolescence, I think I was resentful and, and distanced myself from the family in certain ways, which were unhelpful. Um, and I've been, I think over time and growing up and just maturing, I think you come to recognise that even our fathers have a story and a context of their own and you learn to forgive and you learn to um, appreciate um, that it's 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 never. I, I don't think we can presume what it's like to have that experience from our vantage point. Um, I think there's a there's a sacredness about everyone's journey, and ultimately, I think the fruit of that has been um, shown in our family and all that. Uh, the opportunities we've enjoyed, uh, but it took some years to wrestle with that. Uh, I think, and I think that applies for many men who might have different dynamics in their relationships with their own fathers. That there are times when 
our expectations as sons is not necessarily met. Just as much as our expectations of our children may not be met by our uh, fatherhood. That's right. That's right. Uh, so it, it's a delicate dance, I think, over time. I've just found that it's taken some years for me to process that and, um, and for me to understand his story. And I think for many years I didn't understand that story, which led to, you know, some resentment, led some, to some anger and led to some um, sense of isolation. Um, but over time that story's become um, more transparent and that's helped me to understand and process uh, the whole experience of, mm. of becoming um, an adult myself. Yes. Yeah. Um, I mean, I did two years of net ministries volunteering. I'm straight out of high school. And for me, during that period of time, you know, I was on mission, but we had an hour of prayer scheduled in every day. And so during that time, you know, wounds came up for me and it was a good time to process them. And, you know, when you process these wounds within a Christian context and in prayer with, with Jesus, I think it's very helpful because he reveals these things to you in such a way that you don't become resentful or bitter to the way that your parents may have made the wrong decisions um, in certain circumstances. And, you know, after that two year period, I actually had a very healing conversation with mum and dad and they were, they were able to, you know, apologize for certain things. And, and I was able to apologize for certain things. And, um, you know, they said, well, you know, we did the best with what we had at the time. And so, you know, like we, we all know that we're fallen human beings. And so even as parents, I'm coming to learn that now, like I'm already making mistakes and I've got like babies. <laughs> um, but there's a joy in being able to surrender that all to God because he's the perfect father. And so if I can teach them that he's the perfect father, not me. That's right. It's going to go a long way. And it's really important to have those conversations. I think, you know, not all families in a situation where they can have those conversations. Mm. Um, and sometimes it's about timing and opportunity. And But I think the more that certainly I know as, as a son, the more that I've been able to ask questions of my dad and gently try to understand the world in which he grew up, the more understanding and the more context I have for decisions that were made. And those conversations don't always happen. And I think that's, that's one of the things that I'm really grateful for, for, for what you're doing with Maximus, Chris, is that just being able to have those conversations among men, um, to admit that we don't all have it all together and that we're still learning and trying to wrestle with these questions around who we are uh, in relationship to our families uh, is a conversation that needs to be had more and more, I think. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So that brings us to the point in your journey where you actually encountered Jesus um, as, as a young adult. Can you share your testimony with us, Dan? Yeah, look, it's, um, look, everyone has their own path. But for me, I went to public school, so I didn't have contact with the Catholic faith until my 20s. So it, it certainly wasn't a part of my life um, and I was not expecting to be someone of religious faith. Uh, my grandparents on both sides uh, were Buddhist and Taoist. My parents didn't bring any particular religious conviction to our family here in Australia, 
but it, it simply wasn't one of those considerations that was in our life. And uh, But as I grew through adolescence and into my 20s, um, I came essentially to Christian faith through uh, a friend of mine was baptised uh, as an adult in a parish in Castle Hill, and I attended that baptism at the Easter Vigil, and that was the first time that I stepped inside a Catholic church. And it was particularly the, the litany of the saints and the roll call of holy names that were shared um, during that liturgy that really struck me. I didn't have a sense of who the saints were. I didn't have a sense of who a St. Peter or a Mary might be or a St. Joseph, but I had a sense that this, here was this community honouring the holy lives of men and women who had gone before them. And I think that really opened my eyes to a sense of the possibilities of um, life and vocation and a sense of call and direction, which I was sorely lacking at the time. Just that sense that people had lived not for themselves but lived for others uh, made a great impression on me. And so that started the questions. I, I attended church for about a year and just sat on the fringes. Uh, as a non-Catholic at the time, the liturgy was very overwhelming. It was very strange. Um, I can imagine. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it would be equivalent of today us as Catholics kind of going to an, another church or mm. uh, experiencing another religious rite. Yeah. Uh, when it's not familiar to us, it can be a little bit intimidating. Uh, but the parish priest was very kind, and um, if I wasn't there on a particular weekend, he'd He'd call me up and say, you know, how am I doing? And he'd just check in and say, if you're in the area, come by for a cup of coffee. And I'd do that occasionally. And I guess he was a great example of priesthood for me. He, he was very um, outreaching, very friendly, um, still friends with him today, a very genuine man. Um, and I think that, that support was essential for bringing me to, to make the decision of faith. Um, it was particularly an experience of the Holy Spirit for me. Um, in my 20s, when driving home, I had a, a great sense of um, the presence of God and had the gift of tears. And that was really the first time that I prayed and, and I, I simply said to the Lord, thank you for waiting for me for so long. Mm. I sensed that God had always been there for me, but it took me a little time to catch up and to hear the call. And, and that started the process. I uh, had, had a great RCIA group. Um, I think there were about 20 of us, including sponsors, in that particular year, which is not everyone's experience, but it was great just to have so many people on a similar journey uh, come through. And that's really what led me to um, the commitment of faith. And uh, it's it's been a really rich experience ever since. And one one of the things that I really learned from that is that I'm sure in the year that I joined joined the church that many perhaps might have been leaving from you know the ch- church more widely or our parish in particular, and that's always given me a sense of hope that no matter how many challenges we might encounter in our faith or in parishes or in the wider church, that there are people who are seeking God and there are people who are being called uh, to come to faith and come into the the body of Christ, and I think that that's a great sign of hope. I think we should be looking out for the, for those who are inquiring. I, I have great trust in the fact that God continues to call, um, even even in today, you know, in a far more complex yeah. culture in which we live. I think there's still a hunger for God that our parishes can meet. Yeah. 
Yes, absolutely. I think it's fascinating that the litany of saints was, was that thing that really got to you. I think that's a great grace because I really think there would have been so many people or could have been so many people who experienced the same thing and just thought, oh, come on, get this list over with who are these people. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, even for myself, growing up as a cradle Catholic, I, was, I mean, we were sort of just cultural cafeteria Catholics uh, in the first part of my life, just going to mass on Sundays and not really doing much else. But, you know, I saw the statues, I saw the stained glass windows, I saw the litany of saints. And and it wasn't until after I really encountered God personally when I was about 18 that suddenly they weren't just statues and they weren't just stained glass windows anymore. And I was like, who is this person? And the, their life's just so unique and they're a real person like me. Like there was a real realization there for me as well. And it just shows that's God's grace working through the saints in our lives. Oh, absolutely. I think I think m- most of us, are, whether we're of faith or not of faith, I think we're looking for what we would describe as a narrative of holiness. We, we, we're looking for exemplars and we're looking for a story that, that makes sense, that lives for greatness and um, yeah. that really tries to express you know, the fullness of humanity. And, and obviously as a Christian community, the saints for us stand out um, for us. And I think those narratives of holiness, I think they are compelling as you get to know them and um, yeah. as you learn that, you know, they, yeah, they're very much people like us and, um, you know, we pray that we can have their courage and their commitment. Yeah. And you see that in the narrative of, of superheroes. I mean, Hollywood becomes more and more experimental as the years go by, but it never ceases to be the most successful movie of the year, the the ones that are based on just that typical superhero narrative. Somebody sacrifices himself for somebody more vulnerable. Um, everybody just loves that. It's like, it really is built into our heart, the law that, that God wrote onto our hearts. Uh, absolutely. And I think also, you know, particularly in Western culture, which obviously is very different from, from our Asian culture, but I think in Western culture, I think we've been so impacted by... Christian culture, even if we're sometimes unaware of it, that the stories we tell um, are still holding up yeah. those things that, um, if you like, the gospel yeah. invites. Um, so, no, it's, it's, it's been a real journey and um, certainly not a journey on my own. It's, you know, just been blessed with good friends and companions and yeah. colleagues along the way that have made the journey an absolute joy. And you came into the church at a time when many young men who were the same age as you would have been leaving and at a at a time in history where that was happening too. I mean, it's still sort of happening in this time in history now. Um, so what was it about Jesus himself or the church that appealed to you? But I mean, specifically regarding your masculinity yeah. uh, that showed you that the Christian life is a good decision for a man to make. In my own experience, and I think for other men, often I think we can find forms of validation or find uh, foundations that, if you like, prove themselves to be insufficient. And certainly that was my experience growing up in adolescence. That you know, and I and I and I think we see that a lot. Men are very invested in their careers and work, particularly, um, and and we can invest in these foundations that while still meaningful and we need to work and we need to have, uh, everyone needs a sense of achievement and everyone needs a sense of um, progress. But I think sometimes 
when our foundations are built on um, external um, goods that sometimes we don't always find the satisfaction that we're looking for and something still remains missing. And so I think for me, at least, the sense of the insufficiency of what I was crafting my life around, as well as my desire for more, I think those hungers and those desires led me to the person of Christ, to Jesus himself, and to recognise that in discovering him, I discovered myself, and in discovering myself, I discovered him. Um, I discovered him as, um, as if you like, the one in whom my own masculinity and my own humanity comes to fulfilment in him. Um, I I think often men can find themselves living in exile. Um, You know, recently there was the Bishop's Conference uh, on on men's experience in the church. And I think many men are working very hard and they're, they're juggling multiple commitments, but not always supported in the way they could be and not always have a space where they can ask the questions mm. that are on their heart. And I think the community of the church, a community that's, that builds itself upon the life of Jesus and the message of Jesus is uh, not only uh, of salvific significance, but also social significance. I think that's what many of our men are looking for. Um, so in, in Jesus and in his friendship in my own life, I find um I find hope, I find consolation, I find uh, Jesus as the bond between two worlds, as the man who's God, as a brother, as someone who I call upon, uh, whose spirit um, blesses us and um, provides courage when needed. Um, You know, I I think the richness of Christian life sometimes can be... um, sometimes narrowed down or, or made bland, but in many ways the experience of encountering Christ and surrendering and making the decision to follow him opens up possibilities that um, that sometimes we don't simply see or imagine could be possible. Uh, so I know in my own masculinity he's transformed the way that I think about family, the way that I think about relationships, um, about social commitments, like most Christian men, I imagine that, you know, that a lot of us are challenged by the gospel constantly, challenged to grow, um, to, there's always parts of our life that need conversion. Yeah. Um, so it's humbling as well. It's, there's no shortage of the cross in, in living a committed Christian life. But like love itself, I think it's only when you enter into the demands of that life that you discover its richness. Um, and I think that's the same for our marriages. I think it's only when you enter into the demands of what marriage involves and self-giving it demands that you discover its richness. And I think that's much like faith itself. Um, making that commitment can be can be difficult. It can mean a change of life. It can even mean losing friends and changing habits. Mm. But the richness of what that brings, of knowing Christ, um, uh, are overabundant. Beautiful, beautiful. Um, and I think, I mean, you look at you look at Jesus on the cross, and not only 
is that act the act of our salvation, but it's also the most masculine act in history. Um, so I think men would do well to to look at Jesus on the cross, not as a, you know, oh, you know, he died for us, whatever, but that's the most masculine act in history. What can I do to start to imitate him in that way in my life? Like St. Paul says in, in Ephesians, the way that we're supposed to love our wives, that's the way that we're supposed to love our wives, like on that cross. That's it, absolutely. And, you know, that sense of self-gift and uh, not sacrifice in a destructive sense, but mm. a self-gift in, in giving all of our, all of who we are to the other, yeah. um, to our families and to the church and, yeah. uh, as Christians in the world. I think that's, that's the sense of um, Christian discipleship that is challenging, but, but so rewarding. Uh, we know how much we've received by giving in all aspects of our lives. Um, and, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's an absolute um, joy to, to, to continue to commit to the way of Jesus and, mm. and to his mission, which is probably needed more now than ever. Yes, absolutely. I agree. So I want to go more into the numbers, the statistics that you talked about during your talk for the ACBC Men's Gathering. And you succinctly laid out a landscape during that talk. Um, And that talk's available online. Um, I can link to it in the show notes for everyone. Um, But can you give us a quick overview, some of those numbers that you laid out, just to remind everybody, and I'm sure there's going to be people watching this who who didn't watch that. Um, What is the actual situation in the church in Australia for men? Yeah, sure. We've got about 5.2 million Catholics in the church in Australia. So about 52% of those are female and we've got about 48% of male. So it's a fairly uh, even spread uh, in terms of gender. But that relatively even weighting isn't reflected in our parish. So you'll find, Chris, that there's a lot more women involved mm-hmm. uh, in regular worship um, and also more women involved in parish ministry uh, than laymen. So there's certainly a disproportion. We're not as present in the church as um, as we're called to be. Yes. Um, one of the most striking statistics for me was that what we've seen is about a loss of about 100,000 men um, in attendance over the last two decades. Wow. So, yeah, 100,000 men in the last 20 years, which, wow. which, which I think is really telling. Uh, in terms of um, a gap that we need to be able to address. Mm. Uh, certainly the fastest declining mass attending group in the Catholic Church in Australia is men under 45, and particularly men aged between 25 and 45. Yeah. Um, that probably won't come as a surprise, but then when you look across the pews, we're missing those men from our pews. And yeah. and, and that has a great impact on you know younger men who you know are... Um, who don't have those witnesses of, you know, an, uh, an adult male faith um, in practice. Um, and also that obviously has an impact on families and, um, and and our church for the loss of gifts and the loss of charisms that um, those, those men bear. So yeah. certainly participation in the church by men has, has been declining 
significantly over the past two decades. When you look at men in broader Australian society, you also see there that there are significant social issues. I mean, the rates of suicide in Australia are mm. well known. Um, yeah. And I think you know, of, of the eight suicides take place in Australia every day, six of those are men. And I think that has a lot to do with that silence that we spoke about earlier, that men don't have often places to confide, yeah. places where they can actually express what they're going through. They might not be as forthcoming in expressing emotion or um, as comfortable in sharing their interior life with others, whether that's men or their wives or even with professional counsellors or seeking the help that they need. And I think that silence is something that that, that is um, quite tragic in, in the statistics that we're seeing. One of the, the popular cultural notions that we have in Australia is about mateship. You know, this sense of solidarity with one another, but in some respects, I don't know whether that that notion is really is as real or whether it's simply sentiment. That I'm not sure whether that that concept of mateship actually has real and practical um, weight in in the daily lives of men. Uh, that that mateship's not expressed in moments of suffering and questioning and, and struggle. So from what I'm seeing at least and, and through my own limited experience of the church, I, I think the more forums that we have where men can actually gather and share something of their lives to the extent that they're comfortable, I think that actually has a, a great social impact as well as much as a, as a spiritual one. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's so true what you're saying. I, I'm thinking of... A relative of mine um, who, you know, he's got all sorts of wounds, uh, mental illness issues, that sort of thing. Yeah. But he is willing to suffer so much to actually avoid talking to somebody about his problems. Like he's willing to actually put himself through a lot more pain first, firstly, but then put some of his immediate family members at more pain as well. It's like he, he'll literally do anything to not talk to a professional or a some sort of counsel, anybody like that, get, go anywhere near the church as well. Yeah. Um, he wants to, he wants to just be there with his pain, or he feels like he can't, you know, get out of himself. And I think there's actually so many men in that place. I, I, I certainly can't relate to that because I just don't think I've been wounded that badly enough to know what that feels like. Um, but we're really dealing with a crisis here. I, I think that's really the the crux of the issue. Um, uh, absolutely. And I think, you know, the church has something to offer to that crisis. I think, you absolutely. know, there are many who in Australia, more broadly, Catholics and, and non-Catholics, there are many people who are going through an existential crisis. And um, I think the, the church's, uh, obviously the gospel that we bring forward, the, the, the sense of community that provides um, relationship, that provides friendship, um, the, the multiple spiritual traditions and the insights and wisdom of the ages that are embedded in the Catholic tradition about who we are, how we might live good lives, how we might suffer well, how we might give ourselves to other that might put our lives in a, in a bigger framework than, than what we might be able to see. I think that's the beauty of our Catholic tradition and theology that sometimes all of that connects 
can can usher in and give us hope because it enlarges our experience and sets our experience against a larger story. Um, and I think today with the breakdown of um, our culture and and all sorts of confusing narratives about who the person is and how we relate to one another and yeah. what what leads to happiness and what leads to fulfilment. We need those narratives of holiness. We need those narratives of human flourishing to come forward um, and, and make that available to to men, whether they are of faith or not. Because I think all men and and all people are searching for essentially the same thing, which is that fulfilment, uh, a sense of being loved, and a sense that we have a purposeful life and that we're being called to live out our vocations. Um, in relationship to God, in relationship to our neighbour. Yeah. Uh, I think it's a greater gift that we could offer our civic society as a church to be ourselves. Yeah, absolutely. And on a very basic level, I just think of St. Augustine and St. Monica, who, who shed so many tears over her son who went off the rails. Um, even something that you said in your testimony, um, you know, when you really experienced God on your drive with the gift of tears, like, you know, thank you for waiting for me for so long. And, and St. Augustine says in his confessions, late have I loved you. Um, why has it taken me so long? Like, I can't <laughs> believe it. Um, but part of it was, you know, that grace was building up and we can, you know, through our, will, through our wounds, build up like, like a damn wall, I suppose, around our, our hearts uh, that, that stop the grace from, from coming in. But if people continue to pray and just faithfully, you know, we just know and trust and believe that God really wants to do absolutely everything and has done everything to, to come into our lives. You know, we call on that power through our intercession and the, the damn walls can eventually break. Uh, I think it's cool to have faith in that. Oh, absolutely. I think, you know, I, one of the things that I think is, responsible for a disconnect sometimes between the experience of men and what the church offers is that I think for some men, when they look upon the church, they see, you see an institution and, and they see something which is, um, you know, that, you know, the parody of the church, you know, it's simply about rules and uh, regulations. And in, in many ways, our, mission, I think, as a church is to bring together the experience of men and what the richness of what the church offers. Oftentimes, I think that a lot of men don't see their daily lives, their work lives, their family lives as a place in which God can be encountered. Mm. You know, that they don't consider themselves religious in any sense. Um, but I think there's a recognition that if they can listen and attend to the reality of their lives, to attend to the questions that they're asking and to the insufficiencies and the hungers that they have, simply following that sense of call and that sense of hunger can lead to discovery of God. And I think it's up to our church to be able to show that the gospel is for everyone yeah. and that all of those Feelings and experiences and emotions, the very human emotions, are themselves invitations to encounter the Lord. And I think the more that our 
church can translate the gift of the gospel into the situation of everyday's everyday life of men's careers and their vocations of fathers and husbands as single men, the more that I think, if you like, those two will come together and, and ultimately that um, men will come to faith. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to, in the next sort of 10 to 15 minutes max that we have, like let's focus a little bit on some of the practical ways forward, some, some strategies. What, would be um you know a few strategies to get men to love jesus christ and his church again yeah it's a a very big question chris (laughs) (laughs) what are the three to five things that we need to do i think one of the things sometimes we can overcomplicate evangelization and sharing with the gospel i think one of the great immediate things we can do is if we are a person of catholic faith is to go off and do things that we love with people who aren't of faith Mm. So, so ultimately, you know, if, if we love, if you love fishing, if you love sport, to, to be able to do that with people who don't believe, yeah. um, with faith. And I think there's a great richness in, in just, uh, developing friendships with people because that really, that sense of trust and relationship is the basis of any sharing of faith. That ultimately we, we know that faith is only received and, and welcomed when there is some trust. Uh, and some existing relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think in most of the in most of our um, experiences of evangelization, when we try and share the gospel, we recognise that um, it it's not always appropriate to to simply start talking about the gospel with someone that we barely know. Yeah. Um, that creating the bonds of friendship and joining in shared activities and and following our passions and pursuits is the most natural way to encounter people. And, and over time, the conversation of faith, I find at least, always emerges at some point uh, because you talk about what you do on your weekends or you talk about what That's right. where you work if you happen to, to, to work in the church or, mm-hmm. um, what you, again, what you do on your weekends or um, how you raise your children. All of those opportunities to start talking about your own faith and give them some sort of witnesses to the joy of the gospel and, and how the gospel is shaping your family life. Um, so I think on the ground, very practically, I think just doing, doing things that you love with people that don't believe is a great entry way into evangelization of other men. Yeah. That, that's so realistic. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's good to, it's yeah. good to have those realistic examples. Cause then, you know, there's no excuse basically. <laughs> oh, that's right. I, you know, and all of our programs and resources, they're, they're all great things, but it's the relationships that they serve that really make the difference. So programs and resources. Um, I often think of St. Paul who went out on mission and mm. didn't even have the four Gospels in hand. No. Yeah, but, but, but he had collaborators. He had, yeah. he had um, John Mark or he had Barnabas. Mm-hmm. He had others with him. And I think, you know, we need people more than we need resources. Yeah. Um, it's really people that evangelize, not so much programs. Mm-hmm. So we all then, yeah, as you say, we've all got a responsibility and opportunity for evangelization wherever we work yeah. uh, and live. Yeah. And of course that makes sense because Jesus himself is a person and evangelization is inviting this other person into relationship with the person of Jesus. That's right. That's right. We're, we're, we're only facilitators of a relationship. 
Um, often we think it's good enough to bring people close to Jesus. You know, Father James Mallon, um, who leads a divine renovation ministry in Canada, uh, makes a great point in terms of that that story where there are four men trying to to bring the paralytic to Jesus through the roof. Um, and and often we think as 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 men of the church that it it's good enough just to bring people close enough to Jesus, you know, and, and we don't take the extra step to actually really proclaim the gospel or bring them right into an encounter with Jesus so they can be healed and they can pick up their mat and walk. Mm. Um, I think our ultimate aim in evangelization is to bring people into an encounter with Christ, you know, the Christ that we meet through the sacraments, through the gospel, through the liturgy, through community, through our testimony and witness. Mm. And I think, that's our goal, but it always starts with the first step. And, and often that just means building good friendships yeah. uh, and, and good relationships. And, and over time, that might become something that's explicit and fruitful. So it demands a bit of patience. It does, yeah. And I think it also demands us um, making ourselves continually available to the Holy Spirit, you know, so that we can actually notice those opportunities when they're there. I really feel like if I'm honest with myself and, and examining myself, I probably have had opportunities with friends doing things that I love where I could have shared something or more when I shared nothing or less. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think all of us are kind of guilty of thinking, Oh, we could have made more of that moment. But uh, as you say, it's about praying with an expectant faith that things are possible and, and praying for the people that we love and know who, who perhaps aren't close to the gospel and, and entrusting the Holy Spirit. And ultimately, you know, it's his work and, yeah. and we're simply, you know, hopefully um, facilitators of that. Um, but um, looking for the opportunities with the eyes of faith, I think that's, that, that's a very good start. Yeah. Yeah, and I think, you know, if there's any guys out there watching this thinking, oh, but why would God use me? Just get that out of your head because that's just a lie. He absolutely wants to use you. No question. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. He does want to use you. You don't have to worry about whether he does or not. Um, <laughs> so, you know, he, he wants to use all of us. He wants to use every thing that he has at his disposal, which is all of creation, um, to bring others to know him. Amen. Yeah. Okay, Dan. Um the last thing that we like to do at the end of these Maximus episodes is get our guests to issue a practical challenge. You sort of touched on one, but I, I might let you expand a little bit or you might want to take it a different way. I'm not sure. But a no, practical absolutely. challenge um, that the guys can do over the next fortnight. Um, yeah, to, to keep them on track for, for their own faith, but also for the sakes of evangelization, perhaps. Um, yeah. yeah. Would you like to challenge the guys? I, I would. I think one, one thing that I'd invite the men who are watching or listening to this is to to, to take to prayer. What are the important conversations that need to be had? What are the important conversations that need to be had? It might be a conversation with um, your father or it might be with your wife or a friend or um, a family member. You know, an area where where you feel called that there's a hurdle, there's a wound and that you, that you recognise there's something on your heart that, 
that you feel called to address. I, th- I think to, to, to simply pray about that and to pray about where you might be called to to build a bridge and to be able to open up uh, another aspect of your life. I think so often, you know, the hurts and wounds in our life are relational. Yeah. And we all have forgiveness to offer and forgiveness to be received sometimes and to really pray about that. Because I think sometimes, you know, it might be with our own children that we've done things or said things that we regret and to be able to, to name them and to have the courage to recognize that those spaces, as difficult as they can be, can be places to which we are called in faith. Uh, because I think what is, what is most incumbent upon Christians is to take the first step even sometimes when others aren't willing to take that step, yeah. you know, to, to be able to show the charity where um, perhaps even where charity is not being shown to us and to offer forgiveness perhaps where we have not been forgiven. Yeah. I think, you know, so many men have those hurts and wounds in their life and I don't think we can grow by avoiding them. I think sometimes we grow through them by by bringing them before God, asking for him to instill with us courage um, and consolation and forgiveness and to do those things that must be done, to to take the steps that should be taken so we can build up a sense of communion with our loved ones or with our church or with our friends. Um, So it it is a big challenge, and I'm not saying that, We necessarily need to go out and do that tomorrow, but I think the starting point is that bringing that to God and allowing God to work in us, uh, to, to heal us and to give us the courage over time to be able to take the step that we need to take. Yeah. Thank you, Daniel. That's a challenge that cuts to the heart. And it also reminds me that something that we shared in our bulletin this week is that next weekend, so the 25th to the 27th of September, there's a virtual conference on healing, a Catholic conference on healing that's going to be happening online. And you've got priests and religious involved in healing ministry, but you've also got a collection of Catholic psychologists um, and others involved in in healing ministry and counselling, all giving talks on on all these sorts of topics about forgiveness and, and, um, you know, addictions, mental illnesses, or just mental struggles, marital difficulties, all of those things that you're speaking into, Daniel. So if, oh, fantastic. Guys, yeah, if guys sign up for this, that might be even more of a prompting for them to fulfill this challenge. Um, so, so get onto it, guys. I'll share the link to that in our show notes as well. Sure. Um, Dan, would you like to say a concluding prayer for us, please? Yeah, I'd love to. Love to. Thanks, Chris. And thanks for your time. Really appreciate oh, yeah. what you're doing. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Uh, dear, Lord, dear Lord, we ask you to bless. Um, we ask you to bless all our men. We ask you to bless our families, our relationships, our church. We ask you to speak to us in our heart of hearts. We ask you to um, instill us with courage and hope to see possibility where there's been limitation to see love where there's been fear and to see abundance where there's been scarcity. We ask you to bless our words and our deeds in the coming week, in the coming time, that we might be faithful to you, might 
your Holy Spirit fill us with right judgment and patience and with charity and a sense of love for those who are of faith and those who are seeking you. We ask you to bless our loved ones and the ones that we leave behind each day to serve you in our families, in our communities. And we ask you that you help us be ambassadors of your gospel. Help us to be clear witnesses to you and fill us with the joy in all that we do and all that we serve. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Daniel, it's been a pleasure and a blessing having you with us on the show. We'll have to do it again uh, next season, next year. Sounds great. Fantastic. And thanks so much, guys, for tuning in once again. Um, Stay tuned to our Facebook page for more updates on our upcoming guests and upcoming challenges. And sign up to our e-newsletter that comes out on the week that this does not come out um, for all information on what men's groups around the Archdiocese of Sydney are up to and other cool resources. Thanks again, guys. We'll see you next time. God bless.